Robert Beachy is a professor of history at Yonsei University and the author of Gay Berlin, Birthplace of a Modern Identity. This is Robert Beachy. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Uh, I'm here with Robert Beachy. Uh, thank you very much for joining me today. I'm very glad to talk to you. So you have written a book um, called Gay Berlin, Birthplace of a Modern Identity. Uh, I, I kind of, it, it's a fascinating book and it's a fascinating period of history that you cover. And uh, it, it's kind of surprising for maybe someone sitting in 2023 uh, to look back and see what was you know going on all the way back then in Berlin. Um, I, how did you stumble upon this subject? Well, I suppose um, I, I trained as a German historian or a historian of Germany, and I I really started out as an early modernist. So I was studying mostly the 18th century. And after I published my first book and edited some collections of essays, um, I grew a little bit, um, oh, uh, weary almost of the lack of sort of audience that one has as an academic historian so um and so i i was i wanted i wanted to you know write about something that might have you know broader interest and might right. attract a greater public so um and i had i'd gone to berlin um as a college student already in well the 1980s before the wall ever came down and um you know, I, I began to discover at that point um, that West Berlin um, was just a really, really interesting place. Um, and for all kinds of reasons, um, it was this sort of Western exclave surrounded by a wall, surrounded by East Berlin and the German Democratic Republic, Communist East Germany. And it had this sort of end times feeling almost, you know, it was, well, people, people didn't know what was coming and, you know, there'd been threats for, you know, decades already. And um, it had also attracted a lot of different uh, kinds of, we might say radicals. Um, the West German government actually gave um, West German men when there was still a draft, a, an opportunity to evade the West German draft entirely if they moved to West Berlin. So, and West Berlin had lost population, you know, because of the wall. So, so, um, a lot of different kinds of artists, um, maybe pacifists, I don't know, anarchists, you know, moved yeah. to West Berlin already starting in the 70s and 80s. And along with this, it had this very sort of libertine sexual culture. And um, so I, I was kind of curious about this. And when I started to think about a new project, and this would have been 15 years ago already, I, um, I wondered if anybody had written about Berlin before the Second World War or before the First World War. And there was already a pretty big literature on um, Weimar culture, that is the culture of the 1920s in Germany. But I guess um, there wasn't, there wasn't um, a very developed sort of gay historiography or queer historiography, that is, you know, um, a historical literature on, on gay people, queer people. And so, you know, I, I just started to look around and what I discovered is there are a lot of sort of local historians, lay historians um, in Berlin and other parts of Germany who do all sorts of really interesting um, sort of narrow 
and directed research. They sit on the sources, they're able to identify them, and that's really important. Um, and then they write, you know, little articles, sometimes pamphlets, sometimes small books, always in German, um, with very little circulation. And so I, I also benefited tremendously from this sort of Berlin industry of hobby history, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I, I relied on that also very heavily, but then I spent a lot of time doing research. And I guess um, that book I published, Gabriel Lin, is, is sort of the product of, of that. So, yeah. I, so I, I want to ask about this, this period of, of Weimar Germany. The, the thing that you brought up in there uh, that was interesting is this is before the Berlin Wall fell uh, and then you're in Berlin and it's attracting it's attracting people who are they, they can legally evade the draft by coming to the city because yeah. it's depopulated. This, this is, right. This is in the 1960s, 70s, 80s until the Berlin Wall came down. So, yeah, that must have been so wild. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it was it was just a really bizarre place. I mean, and um, when I was there, I wasn't there for very long. I was there cumulatively for maybe six months and I could I could um, I was always taking language courses or, you know, other kinds of classes. Um, but on weekends, I would often, you know, travel to East Berlin. Um, but there were lots of restrictions. You had to go through this, uh, you know, heavily guarded control and. Um, it really, it really was the cold war on steroids. You might yeah. say it was, it was so, but, and, and East Berlin was, um, you know, sort of the opposite of West Berlin in some ways, but also no less interesting for that because, uh, it was, it was a way of actually experiencing the East block and, and seeing, you know, seeing something of the, you know, enemy and the enemy did, and the, you know, the communist world. So did you go into East Berlin as well? Yeah, I did. I did. I did often. I I did probably, I don't know, um, maybe eight or 10 times. I would usually go over on weekends and spend a spend a day. Um, as an American citizen, I was allowed to travel, um, but there were certain restrictions. I think I had to return to West Berlin before midnight. Um, so there was this sort of Cinderella aspect <laughs> yeah. you, you had to get back across the border before you know, before, before this deadline, otherwise you might get in big trouble. So, um, um, that yeah. was, that was always a lot of fun. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So I, I had been uh, in Berlin in like 2021, 2022, I think. Um, and it does have this really interesting sort of artistic culture and getting to the, the subject of your book, it seems like Berlin has always perhaps been like, sort of like the odd man out, so to speak. Um, it had, what, what, what about this city? Um, do you think, is there something culturally or was it just an accident of fate um, that allowed for this like gay queer culture to flourish in Berlin at this time? Yeah, at, at a very early date. I mean, starting already by the late 19th century. So uh, the late 1800s, I guess, um, I mean, I try to I try to explain that in my book, and I spend I spend a monograph on it. So um, I, I'm not sure if I can uh, I can try sure. to recap, recap you know sort of elements of my argument. And yeah. I don't think there's any any single um, you know magic bullet argument that will just explain it. It's 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 not it's not that easy. And um, there there are just a bunch of 
different features of the city and maybe of Germany more generally of uh, Brandenburg, Prussia, um, sort of the region or territory in which it's located that maybe helped to explain. Um, but I mean, for one thing, you know, Berlin was never a terribly important place until after German unification, which was relatively late, I mean, 1871. And then at that point, it became the, the capital, you know, of this new German empire. And I mean, before that, it was a regional territorial capital, but it, it, its size grew exponentially over the course of the next 40 years. And urban historians, you know, historical demographers, they, they claim that Berlin, you know, in 1900, early 20th century, was um, one of the largest cities in the world, which is a little hard to believe if you go there now, and um, also one of the most densely populated cities in the world. And this reflected this incredibly rapid growth. So if you, you know, from, from a population of maybe half a million to a population of 4 million, you know, within a span of maybe 40 years. And, and that, that, you know, when, when we look at China, maybe now, or some other, uh, you know, sort of uh, countries in Asia, or maybe Africa, that doesn't, that doesn't sound so remarkable. But, you know, um, 150 years ago, that was that was pretty remarkable. So, and there, it was unprecedented. I think that that degree of growth. So, so I think that's the starting point. I mean, and and what that also suggests is just this incredible dislocation. I mean, so really rapid construction, um, the development of you know urban infrastructure, and then lots and lots of new people coming to the city. You know, and um, it would have had the character in some ways maybe of New York. Um, you know. Um, maybe in the same time period or maybe, you know, between the wars. So, so rapid growth is one thing. Um, lots of other potential explanations. I mean, so yeah. um, um, the development, the development started, of a yeah. science of sex is, is really important too. And, okay. and so, um, you know, Berlin became, it also became um, probably the most important German city for, um, different kinds of scientific and and university research and produced a whole lot of Nobel laureates um you know from the late 19th century into the 1920s so and and the University of Berlin which is today the Humboldt University you know was founded it's not an ancient university like Oxford or Cambridge or the University of Paris um it was only founded in 1810 but it also was founded as really the first research university in the world, and it became a model or a template for research universities everywhere else. And that emphasis on original research, not just you know training professionals, doctors, lawyers, but really producing new knowledge, I think is also very important here because um, um, one of the things that made the city more tolerant in some ways was the fact that different kinds of medical doctors, psychiatrists could justify doing a lot of different kinds of research and publishing their results um, based on this um, sort of commitment to original research, you know, the value of, of you know, learning something, introducing it, and, and, and then if it had merit, it was worth, you know, publishing it, and, and it shouldn't be censored then. And this, this was a huge difference from, you know, the United States, Britain, um, even France. So, so there were lots and lots of different publications and there were, there were lots and lots of studies of um, a kind of emerging subculture, um, you know, that, that really was 
pretty large already by the 1890s um, into the early 20th century. So uh, that's another, I think that's another feature element. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's amazing to hear like the sort of the breakdown. And uh, I, I don't know if it feels implausible, but just when I hear, you know, Brandenburg, Prussia, I don't think, you know, the, the gayest place on earth. <laughs> it's just, um, but so one of the things that does sort of, uh, I don't know, loom over this book is that um, this period that you're talking about in, in Weimar, Germany, it does have uh, like a cataclysmic ending. Um, yeah. And uh, furthermore, the, the Nazis point to this era as like, oh, this is, you know, quote unquote, degeneracy, whatever. Um, and did, I, I don't know, how, how do you feel about, um, did, did this, can, can you draw any kind of straight line between this era of history and sort of like, I don't want to say provoking a reaction, but I mean, is that appropriate to, to say? To some extent, I guess, um, first of all, the identity of, you know, the, the, you know, having an identity um, based on your, you know, sexual orientation, even the notion of a sexual orientation, those are, you know, those are fairly recent constructions, we might say, or inventions. And, and again, the Germans and Berlin in particular play a huge role. I mean, so, um, you know, the very term homosexuality um, is a neologism, you know, coined by a German speaker and first published, used in a publication, you know, 1869, 1870, and, and um, in a German publication. So the word was homosexuality. And so the identity itself, in some ways, you know, is being invented. Um, in Germany and in Berlin. And, and it's that, you know, having, having labels, you know, um, is really important. Uh, this, this sort of, if I can use the word discourse of, of sexual sure. orientation is really critical um, because it also allows an emerging community to define itself. It gives people ways of interacting with each other and sort of establishing community, if you will. Um, so, Along with this, um, the Berlin police um, established what we sometimes refer to now as pink lists. So they weren't they weren't really harassing um, men they knew to be attracted to other men, but they were keeping track of them, and they were also you know keeping track of of male prostitutes, um, and so there's a way in which this community um, really, really took on a shape and form. It was, it was tangible. Yeah. Um, and it was especially, um, it wasn't really a subculture any longer by the 1920s. Um, I mean, I'm talking about the late 19th century, the early 1900s, before the First World War, before 1914. Um, but by the 1920s, um, it was extraordinarily visible. And, you know, there were a whole range of periodicals, magazines, you could buy them at kiosks in public places. Um, and, you know, the Nazis took advantage of that. I mean, they could identify this group and decide to persecute primarily gay men because 
the identity existed and the community was identified. I mean, it, I, and I, I don't, I don't, I don't see um, any real parallels between the persecution of of Jews in Europe and the persecution of gay men. I mean, so, uh, but, but the one thing that we might say they have in common is a fixed identity. Um, so, you know, Nazis could identify who was Jewish. That was that was very much a part of one's you know, legal identity. Um, and through the work of the police in Berlin and also in every other major German city, um, it was easy to figure out sort of communities of uh, men who were homosexual or, you know, who, who sort of had lots and lots of social contacts with other men who were also homosexual or at least suspected of being homosexual. So I think, I think, you know, um, on the one hand, um, the community gained this identity, which, which was, which was in, in most part, you know, a really positive development, but it was also this that was then completely and ruthlessly exploited by the Nazis, um, right. especially in the second half of the 1930s. So. Right. Yeah. As soon as you can be identified, you can be become a target. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, it, you mentioned um, the uh, you know the police keeping track of like male prostitutes and of gay men stuff like that. The, the pink list. W one of the parts of your book that is truly fascinating is how a lot of this tolerance um, in Berlin grew out of uh, a desire to sort of thwart blackmail attempts, um, mm -hmm. where you know someone you know, knew that someone else was gay and then they would try to, you know, extract something from them uh, because they had this sort of uh, privileged information. Um, why, it, this seems like kind of an obvious way to deal with the problem of blackmail. Um, why in Berlin in particular was it dealt with in this way? Um. It had a lot to do with the activism and also the research of a handful of medical doctors or psychiatrists, sort of early sexologists. And um, probably the most important figure um, was a man named Magnus Hirschfeld, and he was a he was a Jewish medical doctor. He was he was gay, but never you know never really open, although everybody assumed, and. Um, he founded the first real homosexual rights organization in the world um, in 1897. And he he published um, all the time. I mean, so, you know, if you stacked all of his various publications, you know, you could fill, you could fill a small library probably. And um, he also had really close ties to the Berlin police. So he was, he, you know, he was, he was an educated um, sort of respectable person. And um he managed to sort of involve the police in his sort of activism. And there was, there was one um, particular police commissioner who was very interested in this issue. And he, he might've also been, you know, closeted and gay. And he sort of recognized the difficulty of enforcing the law. Um, the law was also basically unenforceable because it it really only criminalized very specific narrow sexual acts and you know 
it required a denunciation by somebody who was involved, basically. So this this wasn't very common, you know. And and technically, there was nothing illegal about um, a bar or a club even that catered just to men or catered just to women. And, and that was common by the 1890s. And so the strategy became to just more or less tolerate establishments as long as, I guess, the patrons um, behaved themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and the real issue then was that respectable closeted homosexuals were always um, vulnerable to these different kinds of blackmail or extortion attempts made especially by younger male prostitutes. And so, and so, you know, the way you described, and maybe ironically, um, uh, the main target for the police was these young men who were threatening, you know, the um, closeted status of lots of different sorts of professionals in some cases yeah. politicians and and in the early in the very early um 1900s there were there were just there were a bunch of just explosive cases um uh where you know individuals were revealed you know to be involved in some sort of an affair or you know they they'd patronized a um you know a male prostitute and this stuff got splashed all over the press everybody would find out about it and so this this actually made the police that much more um I guess, uh, engaged in trying to crack down on the male prostitution and the male prostitutes and the black male. So um, I see that, that that's a fascinating dynamic where the, the when you say respectable, uh, th- these are people who have a higher position in the social hierarchy than these yeah. young male prostitutes. And they're really being protected here. Uh, mm-hmm. But everyone in this sort of engagement is on some level at risk. Um, yeah. Wow. And uh, did well, did any of these? Um, how, how did the young male prostitutes feel about this? Uh, well, uh, I mean, their 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 voices, so to speak, are 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 mostly lost. I mean, so you know, it's it's hard to it's hard to say for sure. I I, I can only imagine that you know they're objective would have been to avoid the police, avoid being caught. Um, And, you know, a lot of them, there were some studies that were done later in the 1920s and it, you know, it was pretty clear they weren't, they weren't necessarily, they weren't all gay themselves. You know, they were, they were, you know, male hustlers and that's, that's sort of a constant actually, I think in gay history. I mean, you, you can find a lot of places where they're young men, selling sexual services it has nothing to do with their own sexual interests it's just a way to make quick money so um and and it's usually the you know the the hustlers themselves are almost always poor yeah you know sort of working class um so but you can only imagine that it would have been there would have been tremendous resentment um and um but again, they also had less to lose. I mean, it wasn't as if, you know, they, they would potentially be discredited and lose their profession or lose face or, you know, not be able to get, you know, maybe their wives, they, they weren't married necessarily there. Their wives weren't going to divorce them or something, you know, so. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it left less to lose and therefore the risk of coming public with blackmail is like, well, you know, 
kind of only have something to gain there unless there's a, a sort of a mechanism against that. That's where the police step in. Um, one of the things that I also wanted to ask you about, and that is really bizarre, is that there were a number of Nazis who were gay. And like, what the hell is going on there? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, um, I don't know. I, I'm inclined to say that this is um, a feature, a very peculiar feature of German culture and um, of uh, nationalist um, right-wing politics in Germany. And I mean, there, there are, there are some who have argued that this is uniquely German, um, that, you know, if you look for other nationalist right-wing political movements, you don't find this in the same way. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but there is, there is a German, you know, sort of culture of male homosociality and, you know, male clubs. Um, there, there, there's actually um, a term that was coined by um, a sociologist who, a kind of pseudo-sociologist who was also a student of the German youth movement starting around 1900. And he he talked a lot about the German Männerbund, which means roughly, you know, the, the men's organization. And, you know, this gained a lot of attention through the 1920s. And um, it described or actually sort of prescribed a particular character of the you know patriarchal male dominated state and society so um and you know it took models from from the ancient world from the spartans um and it identified you know hyper masculinity with same sex attraction uh, and 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 this was explicit and uh, this was also something that was published in lots of different um books, pamphlets. Um, and you have to, you have to sort of assume, and this, this is also clear from, you know, some of the highest ranking Nazis who are also then discovered to be homosexual and, and um, that this had a pretty strong influence on the culture. Um, um, it's also the case, you know, that there was this war, the first world war that was fought and, and, um, uh, this also had, you know, an impact on on the way men interacted with each other. Now, I mean, um, you know, it, it's it, it's it's completely ridiculous to, you know, somehow argue um, that a huge number of Nazis were gay or something. And I mean, there 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 there's been a lot of really scurrilous popular culture since 1945 about, you know, the gayness of the Nazis, and <laughs> um, and and you know, that's 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 pretty bogus but but there is this there is this sort of feature of german culture that would help to explain how and why certain kinds of um very you know right wing very nationalist often extremely anti jewish anti semitic men who were also attracted to other men would be attracted to the nazi movement and it's pretty clear that was the case in the 1920s into the early 30s um, and right up until the um, execution of Ernst Röhm, who um, died in the Night of the Long Knives in the summer of 1934, along with the leadership of the SA, the Stromabteilung, which was the largest and the oldest um, 
Nazi paramilitary organization. And, and I think that's what you were probably alluding to. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, that guy in particular was, um, you know, someone who I believe was known to sort of hang around with uh, male prostitutes and things like that. And I mean, did they have some understand or some belief that, you know, oh, we were in the clear uh, that we wouldn't, you know, the knives wouldn't be turned on us? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, uh, Room, um, so this this character um, was considered one of the Alte Kämpfer or old fighters, which means he had been a part of the Nazi movement going back to the very beginning, really, 1920. Um, he was considered Hitler's closest friend among high-ranking Nazi functionaries and officials. Um, he he actually left the country. He moved to South America um, and lived there until Hitler recalled him um, in 1930 to become the head of the SA. And then after he'd become the head of the SA, um, there was this scandalous uh, trial in which he was accused of being homosexual and of having violated the anti-gay law, the anti-sodomy statute. And this was splashed all over the press. And this started in mm, 1931, 32. And so anybody who paid attention knew this or learned about it. Um, the left wing was especially um, uh, ruthless in, in broadcasting, you know, his, his um, sort of sexual foibles, um, exploits. And so, you know, the Nazis came to power in 33 and Röhm wasn't sort of put down. He wasn't executed for a year and a half after the Nazis came to power. And it, it was done in a very um, sort of cloak and dagger way. Um, he didn't see it coming. He didn't know it. Um, and up until that point, nobody anticipated that there would be a very clear sort of campaign against homosexuals. And in part because this extraordinarily high-ranking Nazi, maybe the second or third most powerful man in Germany, in the Third Reich, um, was, you know, openly gay, more or less. And so, so you know, and, and the campaign didn't really start until after he was, uh, was killed and sort of no longer in the picture. Um, and so, you know, in that in that early period of the Third Reich, after Hitler was appointed chancellor in January 1933, for a year and a half, for close to that long, um, anyone who was openly gay or, you know, closeted um, and attracted to the Nazi movement might have joined without ever expecting, you know, that that combination somehow wouldn't work out for them, you know? And, yeah. So, yeah, that, that I, what was going through, like, I mean, probably hard to say, but a guy like Hitler's mind, when he, he had to have known about these rumors, was he silently oh, fuming or was he just like, whatever? Um, he's on record saying things like, um, uh, Room's private life is not our business. It's not my business. We don't care what he does. Um, you know, wow. so, and, and there were, there were, and there were others who were, who, who were, who, you know, were horrified and wanted to take him out. 
um, thought he should be at a minimum demoted. Um, but you know, Hitler, Hitler protected him actually. So, um, so he's been a good guy. <laughs> Kidding. Um, yeah. no. So it, w- one of the things that, um, is sort of strange and, um, like surreal is the swiftness of, um, you know, this period of openness and then shut down. Um, Were people during this time, let's say like the 1920s, was there a sense that uh, this would all end or where did people think that um, things would go um, within, let's say, the gay movement? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess, first of all, um, what might be referred to as a gay movement or maybe a gay community um, was never really ideologically uniform. I mean, you know, there it, it was, it was, how would I say, heterogeneous. I mean, there were, you know, there were people um, on the left, people in the center and people on the right. And um, so I think depending on your perspective, you would have um, seen, uh, you know, the clouds looming, or or you might have, you know, looked forward with great anticipation, you know, to the coming of some kind of fascist state, I guess. So, um, but I, I think, I, you know, in general, um, Weimar culture is always talked about, described as um, a kind of decadent culture inspired in part by desperation, I guess. And, you know, it it sort of emerges from this period of incredible inflation where everyone's savings were completely wiped out in 1923. Um, you know, there was a, a phase of sort of stabilization economically. Um, and then along with it, this incredible efflorescence of culture. I mean, and and there really, there really are a lot of incredible things going on in Germany in the 1920s. Um, but then with the New York stock market crash starting in 1929, uh, Germany was especially susceptible because of the structure of um, this debt that Germany had been forced to take on by the Versailles Treaty. Um, and they were still in debt um, to the French and then to the Americans. And a lot of short-term loans were called in and Germany suffered economically probably worse than any other country. So, so there was just incredible um, unemployment and, and, you know, businesses and banks folded um, incredibly rapidly starting in 1930. And that was also the opening for the, the Nazi movement for, you know, the party as such. And that's when they started to make significant gains um, in elections. Um, So, uh, you know, so, but again, I think depending on, on, on your political perspective, um, I think it's conceivable that you would have been that you could have been someone like Rum, um, and or others like him, and and sort of looked forward with with mm. anticipation to this, you know, coming fascist state. So I, I, I think for for people on the left, I mean, it looked like the end of the world. So you know, and 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 a lot of a lot of the activists probably. Um, a majority of the activists who are really working hard to reform or even overthrow the anti-gay law, the anti-sodomy statute, um, 
a lot of them were Jewish. Um, a lot of them were affiliated with um, the Communist Party in Germany or the Social Democratic Party in Germany. And um, the Nazis, you know, were the arch enemy. Um, and, and, and they recognized the Nazis as a, as a tremendous threat, I mean, to democracy, to um, some sort of open society. Um, and so um, I think those on the left didn't, you know, they, they weren't wearing blinders and they, they, they really feared what might be coming, so. And, and you mentioned uh, how people on the left sort of made hay with the, uh, the behavior of a guy like Rome. Um, was it at all, um, what, what was like the general feeling among the left about say homosexuality? It, it, was it at all similar to how uh, like in the, uh, the, the Bush Kerry election people, uh, Democrats used to sort of make hay about uh, Dick Cheney's, I, I think daughter was a lesbian. Uh, yeah like that <laughs> yeah, okay. that's, that's, that's probably a pretty good a pretty good parallel I, uh, yeah i like i like the comparison a lot i mean um so extremely opportunistic um um and at least superficially supportive of um the gay rights movement on the left in in the weimar period especially the communist party um the social Democrats were never as openly supportive. So, but the communists were always in support of um, a, a complete sort of legal reform that would have um, decriminalized sexual relations between men. And, um, but yeah, you put your finger on it, you know, um, the opportunity to attack a political opponent, especially a Nazi, um, was just too good, um, and and the social democratic newspapers um, um, really exploited um, the court case and uh, the room scandal starting in 1931. So, um, yeah, yeah, I it seems then that perhaps like did did uh, say gay people have like a political home at all? I mean, is that do you think? on any level why there were so many like divergent views because there wasn't, I mean, maybe except for the communists, there wasn't uh, any one political party who was really pressing for a uh, change. Um, that's a really good question. I, uh, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how effectively anybody can really answer because there aren't, you know, there just aren't, there probably aren't adequate sources, you know. Sure. Um, you know, it's clear it's clear that there are people on the entire political spectrum who, um, in some cases, even identified more or less openly as as gay. So, um, uh, hard to say then. Yeah, hard to say. I, I mean, I, I I would I would I would suggest that you know the left was always much more of a home um, than even you know the center party which was the center party or or any of the right-wing parties um and 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 a lot of the right-wing parties were you know were really openly and explicitly anti-gay um and even the nazis um uh you know came out against came out openly and strongly against legal reform um in the late 1920s when it was when it was really being debated and appeared to be a possibility um so um it's not as if the Nazis were neutral 
either, uh, at least not formally. But this weird dynamic created by um, the role of Ernst Röhm and then the scandal that emerged around him uh, really made the position of the Nazis, you know, ambiguous. And uh, and it is clear; it's clear from statements um, that are made by people who maybe were arrested later in the 1930s that at least until 1934 or a little beyond, they never really expected or anticipated that the Nazis would crack down the way they did and would, you know, really go after um, homosexual men. So, I mean, it's, it's important to also emphasize that, you know, through the 1930s, um, this this campaign, it wasn't, it wasn't genocidal. I mean, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't an attempt um, uh, like what happened ultimately with the, the Shoah, you know, to, to simply eliminate and kill, annihilate, you know, an entire population. What the Nazis really wanted to do was eliminate homosexuality, but not, not homosexuals per se. And, and that might sound like a very fine distinction, but, it, but it's an important one. You know what that just immediately reminds me of is, I don't know if you saw this recently, but it was someone at CPAC that says, uh, we want to eliminate transgenderism. We, we don't want to, we don't want to do away with transgender. Do, do you know what I'm talking about? I do, yeah. Exactly, right. So the openness, the visibility, um, all of those things needed to be eliminated, right. Um, we don't want to hear about it. We don't want to see it. We don't want to have it discussed openly, yeah. On that note, uh, do you feel like the parallels uh, with the time period of Weimar Germany that we're talking about and today, uh, did, sometimes there are, uh, you know, certain, say, like activists speaking today or scholars or whomever uh, who draw those parallels. Um, do, do you? Um, there's sort of a there's sort of a um, a bad joke about how eventually somebody's going to invoke the Nazis, you know, to talk about X, Y, or Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so here I go. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, um, well, I, the, the, the parallel is this. Um, um, the Nazis also, I think very self-consciously um, exploited what they saw as an opportunity to attack and persecute sexual minorities to gain the support of right-wing conservatives in Germany who weren't necessarily committed to Hitler or to the Nazi party. And that's what happened after, after Röhm was executed in the summer of 1934. And that's exactly um, what goes on in the United States and lots of other places. It's, it's, um, it's a way to sort of rally the base or increase the size of the base. Um, in the case of the United States, it's, I think it's probably the religious right, um, but increasingly there seem to be other kinds of white nationalists who um, maybe aren't even explicitly Christian who also you know, would support <laughs> um, cracking down on, on what they consider decadent or immoral. Right. And, and those same people, they draw parallels of their own 
but just sort of with the values flipped. Yeah. You know, oh, we're living in Weimar, Germany. Right. I guess. So. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, so, and you're right. Some of them, I guess some of them are really openly neo-Nazis. Um, and maybe, maybe they don't, maybe not all of them on the far right would actually openly say that they admire Hitler or something, but some do. Um, and, right. and it's, it's increasingly mainstream in the Republican party, which is shocking. I mean, the, 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 you know, the, the displacement, I think it's the displacement theory, you know, the, the idea that um, um, the Democratic Party that leftists in the U.S. Are, are trying to encourage immigration, even illegal immigration, because they want to um, sort of uh, increase the size of um, a minority population and sort of overwhelm the whites. I mean, you know, and that's 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 explicit, I mean, over and over again. Are, are you familiar with uh, Nick Fuentes at all? Yeah. He, um, a good, good friend of uh, a former president. Who apparently, died. yeah. yeah. Um, he, he's like sort of a, a white nationalist streamer. Um, and he's been accused of uh, being gay. Uh, he's, he's a guy who hates, he, he, he's, he's gone on record saying that he, he doesn't want to cavort with women at all. That's because... Uh, He's he's like a dedicated incel, and then there. Uh, I didn't know that about him. Big big scandals about him and uh, some other you know uh, white nationalist streamer uh, palling around who's apparently openly gay. It's um, and, and I, when I say this, I don't want to imply that there's any like association between far right and being gay or anything like that. Um, but. Uh, I, I, there may be some pattern of certain people being drawn into that out of some kind of weird, uh, you, you said like hyper masculinity, you know, and presenting as a, you know, maybe self hatred presenting as a form of hyper masculinity. I have no idea, um, yeah. but interesting parallel. I believe uh, before we go here, I wanted to ask you because uh, this book, um, I believe, had a big impact. Um, and I believe you're writing another book. It, can, can you talk about it uh, at all? Um, or is that a, a closely guarded secret? It's not a closely guarded secret, no. Um, well, I, when I started working on Gay Berlin a long time ago, I um, thought that I would also write something about um, the 1930s and maybe early 40s. And I realized that there really is a break in 33 and it just didn't make sense. I also discovered that there are just um, more sources, you know, sort of archival materials than one can easily manage, certainly to include in a book um, about Berlin before 1914 or that starts before 1914. So, so anyway, um, what I'm working on now, I'm, I'm looking at sort of the trajectory of the Nazi anti-gay law. So the Nazis, they did reform the law. They made it more draconian in 1935. Um, and that law remained the law of West Germany until 1969. So even after 1945, there was this legal continuity. And the West Germans continued to arrest and um, in often incarcerate um, homosexual men um, you know, through the 1960s, basically. And so um, what I'm looking at now is um, this 
sort of long durée of persecution and then the continuities from the Third Reich um, to the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany after 1945. So, Sounds like a fascinating topic. Um, Robert Beachy, the book is Gay Berlin, Birthplace of a Modern Identity. Uh, is there anywhere else where people can uh, find you, uh, a website perhaps? Uh, I don't, I don't really have a website. Well, I guess I, I, I'm, I'm listed on, uh, the faculty website of the university where I teach, uh, Yensei University in Seoul. So, um, and that might be a good place, um, to look, I guess. So, but how do you wind up in Seoul, by the way? Uh, <laughs> there's, there's, there's no good explanation for that either, except that I was ready to do something new and go somewhere else. And, um, it was a very, very attractive job. And um, so I, I moved here in 2014, it's been a while. And in fact, um, I moved before Gabriel Lynn was published. So it wasn't published until after I'd been here for a few months. Mm. And so- um, Do you speak Korean? I assume. Uh, <laughs> not really, no, it's, okay. it's I teach in English. Um, and, oh, okay. um, um, actually, maybe, to the detriment of my language acquisition <laughs> it's 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 really easy to get along in english here so um uh, i see yeah makes uh, sense yeah so well uh robert pleasure talking to you um fascinating book and thank you very much for your time thank you very much it's been a, it's been great to have this conversation with you thank you to robert beachy and thanks for listening to dunk tank i'm duncan gammy see you next time